Good evening, everybody. My, vo my voice may give out a couple of times today. It's having this reaction to all the smoke that's going on. I don't know if anybody else is experiencing that. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Colossians 1 tonight. So if you have your Bible uh, or a phone, uh, turn with me to Colossians 1. I'm going full Steve tonight with the iPad. It's my first time, so... So why don't we uh, pray and then we can get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night, for this day, and for the grace that we have in your Son. We just pray that you would open our minds so we could understand your word and behold Christ in all his glory, um, that it may transform our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you again. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I've given this message the title, Crystallizing Our Christology. Crystallizing our Christology. So I'll begin reading at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Amen. When I was a kid, I had uh, one of those planetarium nightlights, which was basically a little orb that had an extension cord, and you plugged it in, put it in the middle of the room at night, and it would project all these lights onto your ceiling. Um, and I used it all the time, and it wasn't, of course, a real view of the night sky. Uh, by comparison, it was much, much less than that. But it still um, provoked this sense of wonder and awe uh, of the vastness and the mystery and the beauty of the universe. And so what I hope to do tonight is something along those lines as we take a look at our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ in this passage um, I won't as much try to prove to you the deity of Christ uh, from this text. Um, it becomes clear, and we're already getting that in spades on uh, Sunday mornings as we're going through the first chapter of the Gospel of John. My goal is rather to produce in you wonder, to produce wonder, and to provoke conviction. Uh, to provoke conviction in you guys. So, uh, in this letter, Paul is writing to these believers in the city of Colossae. Uh, who were under the assault of false teaching that had infiltrated the church. Paul himself was imprisoned while he was writing this, and the man who had likely started the church, which was Epaphras, uh, later on he mentions in this letter, um, had brought him a report of two things, a positive and a negative. The positive, he brought him a report of the faith, love, and hope um, that were in the possession of these Colossian believers, that they had a faith, love, and hope in Christ, and for one another as well. Uh, the second item of the report was negative, and it was a report of this error that was going around in Colossae, specifically among the Colossian believers. And Paul, in all likelihood, had never actually met these people, but because he was one with them in Christ, he felt a concern for them and was really provoked to action. Uh, and he wanted to essentially come to their aid as they're undergoing this assault of all this false teaching. 
And so the precise details of the Colossian heresy are debated among scholars and historians, but it was most likely a mix of Jewish legalism and pagan mysticism, from what we can gather from the rest of the letter. Uh, there was a mix of, he mentions asceticism, angel worship, uh, he mentions elemental spirits of the world, and so this false teaching was essentially a, a, um, a synchronistic amalgamation of different you know, folk religion and also Judaism from the Old Testament, a legalistic, uh, particularly legalistic version of Judaism. And so, as we, and so he's responding to this, and as we move through the text tonight, we're going to see that the flavor of this, uh, of this letter and of this paragraph in particular is both worshipful and militant. Uh, the, there's a tone of, um, it's doxological and it's also polemic. He's, he's really going on the, on the offensive with this, uh, while at the same time holding up Christ. And so it's an exaltation of Christ and a refutation of error. Alex Montoya said that it's okay to be a poodle, just not in the Christian ministry. That you need to be a dog that's got a bark to you. And that's what we get with the Apostle Paul here in our text. And so what we're going to see, what our, really our main idea, our central idea, is that Jesus Christ is the supreme creator of the universe and the divine head of the church. He's the supreme creator of the universe and the divine head of the church. Verse 15 begins, He is the image of the invisible God. One of the most basic things of what the Bible teaches about God is that he is a spirit being. He's a spirit being. He has no physical body. For all that the Bible talks about, the hands of God, the wings, the eyes, the mouth, he has no body. He is not bound by the limitations of matter or spatial dimensions like we are. We are finite creatures. He is infinite. John in, uh, Jesus in John 4 even says that God is spirit when talking to the woman at the well. But if you're acquainted with the Old Testament at all, you might be thinking, hmm, wait a minute, there were times in the Old Testament when people visually saw God, right? Genesis 18, Abraham was approached by God and two angels in the form of men. He, he even ate a meal with them. Exodus 3, Moses has this encounter with God in this bush that was ablaze yet not burned. But he saw it with his own eyes. Isaiah, in that classic text on God's holiness, Isaiah 6, he sees the king high and lifted up, seated on the throne in his temple, saw it with his own eyes. Yet these temporary manifestations didn't represent who God is essentially. They were, um, I don't know if you've ever seen a solar eclipse and been given those special glasses, for the, that, way, that way you can actually look up and see, but it's just heavily, heavily tinted sunglasses. It was essential, that was essentially what these, uh, these figures saw. They didn't truly see God as he is. They just saw what God allowed them to see of him because they would be destroyed otherwise. And so um, uh, they weren't full representations of his divine nature. Um, in a couple years, we will get to John 1 verse 18 on Sunday. And uh, there it even says, no one has ever seen God. Um, no one has ever seen God. Uh, the incarnation, when Jesus was born, the whole Christmas story is not God uh, opening up the windows so we can look out and see him. It's God actually entering the building and standing right in front of us. Um, the word here even used for image 
aikon in the original language, it's, uh, it's where we get the word icon from. And it means image, representation, copy, or likeness. And um, this is what Paul was saying. That Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, that he makes God, he makes the invisible God visible. The Father makes himself vis uh, visibly and physically accessible in his Son. See, the difference between us and Christ is that we were made in the image of God. He is the image of God. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And when it says exact imprint, it's, it's using the, the word used to talk about the image on a stamp, that where the, the image of the emperor was stamped onto a coin. And so that the result would be the image on the coin and the image on the stamp were identical. And that's the sense in which he's trying to give here. And really that's the point of the New Testament at large is that Jesus is identical in nature with the Father. Not just identical in character, to say that he's a, a perfectly moral human, identical in nature. He shares the same divine nature with the Father. Uh, you may remember in the, in the upper room before Jesus uh, left to go be arrested and crucified, he's having this conversation with his disciples in John 14, uh, verse 8. He, uh, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you then sh say, show us the Father? If you want to know what God is like, look, look at Jesus Christ. That is what God is like. He's the perfect manifestation of who God is, the perfect representation of what God is like, and the perfect self-disclosure of God, God's being. And it's this one who is the image of God. Uh, he also says here, he's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now this phrase, uh, really this word, is the playground for the cults. If you know anything about um, different cults that are masquerading as Christianity, um, the word here for firstborn, uh, this will be an important one because you will, I don't know if you, anybody here has gotten the knock at the door and you know who it is because you see and you, and you see the short sleeves and the tie. Um, the word here is prototokos. Prototokos. That's going to be if there's, you know, you, you may not know, learn every word of the original language. If there's a handful of them, this is going to be one of them that you'll want to know. Prototokos. Uh, it was at the center of a firestorm in the church in the third century. And a certain man interpreted the use of this word to mean that Jesus Christ was the first created being. Firstborn of all creation. He must be the first being ever created. And he further, he further reasoned from that, that however holy and exalted and consecrated he is, Jesus Christ is not God. And by so doing, he not only ignored the greater context of the New Testament at large, but he ignores even the immediate context of this letter. I mean, even this paragraph alone, it could not be more clear uh, that Paul sees Christ as God. He could not be clear about the deity of Christ. And here's two things to consider. If by firstborn he meant born first, first being ever born, that would mean two things. One, he would be agreeing with the heresy that he's writing this letter to refute. And two, 
he would be incorrect in attributing that title to Christ because by that usage, who would be the first being ever born? Cain. Cain would be the first being ever born by that usage of the term. And so those who insist on this interpretation, they deliberately ignore the fact that the Bible so frequently uses the term firstborn not to describe sequence of birth, but uh, superiority of rank. Not sequence of birth, but superiority of rank. Exodus 4.2, God is speaking to, the, to Pharaoh through Moses, and he says, Israel is my firstborn. Was Israel the first nation created? No. In Job 18, actually turn there real, with me real quick. I just discovered this. Job 18, verse 13. Job chapter 18, verse 13. It says here, I'll even read it, verse uh, 12. His strength is famished, and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. Was that the first person to ever die? No, it's, it's, a, it's talking about a, a disease of the, of the worst kind. Of the worst kind, it's a, almost a superior, the superior disease is what it's talking about. Even in Isaiah 14, verse 30, it says the firstborn of the poor. It's not the first poor person ever born. It's talking about the poorest of poor people. And so it uses that phrase to, to speak about superiority in that sense. Um, the way that it's even used here in, in, uh, ancient, in the ancient Near East, the firstborn son was the... Uh, they would get a double portion of the inheritance and the patriarchal blessing. It was a, uh, a word, this word that was used, uh, it was used to denote status, rank, prominence, superiority, honor, and inheritance. It's not talking about the sequence of, the way that the Bible uses this word often is not about just about uh, first in sequence, but first in rank. And so what Paul is saying here is that the Son of God, the very image of God, Jesus Christ ranks above all creation. He ranks above all creation. He is above creation, superior to it, and is to be honored above creation. And like I mentioned before, not just rank, but inheritance. Not just rank, but actually uh, what Christ would inherit. Psalm 2, many of you are familiar with it. It says here in the seventh verse, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So Jesus Christ is first in rank. And he is also the highest honored one in the whole universe um, and will receive an inheritance that is commensurate with that honor. Further describing Christ, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. What do the first words of the Bible say? You can talk. In the beginning, God created. There's only one God and he created all things. So for Paul to say that by Christ all things were created is so clearly making a claim that Jesus is God. You have to do somersaults and, and linguistic gymnastics to try to get over that. You don't even have to interpret it. You just have to read it. Um, yet many, uh, so many do misinterpret it, and many of us 
naively call them brothers and sisters in the Lord. My family lives in Belmont. And what that means is that we have to take Alameda de las Pulgas to get here. Does anybody know what is on the intersection of Alameda, Topaz, and Brewster? Where, right before it makes that little S curve. Does anybody know? There's a sign. It is a sign pointing to a Unitarian Universalist church. They are not our brothers in Christ. That's Unitarian as uh, contrasted with Trinitarian. They deny the um, distinct persons of the Godhead. They're not our brothers in Christ. They, believe, uh, they do not believe in a Christ who is preeminent, as this text says. They believe in a lie. Uh, they believe in a Christ who is not worthy of honor, glory, power, wealth, and might. And it's right for us to, to, to take a stand for him. And to t- take a stand for the truth. It's not good enough that someone says, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe what Jesus says about himself? That is the question. What he so clearly says about himself. And he so clearly says that he is God. And this, this uh, Savior who is divine, he made everything out of nothing. Everything out of nothing. Everything seen and everything unseen. And by unseen, we, we take into account the, the spiritual world around us that we don't perceive. But there are also realities of our physical world that we can't see, that are invisible to us. Has anybody ever seen an atom or a quark? I haven't. Um, they used to believe that atoms were the smallest particles in the universe. Now it's, it's quarks, which are these sub-subatomic uh, particles. Um, let, let's just take atoms. You know how many atoms it take, you can fill in the very tip of a needle? Sometimes, some scientists say about 5 million million hydrogen atoms can fit in the very tip of a needle. Can't see any of them. Jesus made them all out of nothing. All of them. I mean, just consider how many atoms there are in the whole universe. There are star systems and nebulae, nebulae and galaxies that exist that are so far beyond our perception, they exist only for the glory and pleasure of God himself. And some of our best guesses estimate that there are 200 billion trillion stars in the known universe alone. Jesus Christ made every single one of them and named them all himself. And so uh, Paul goes here from things visible and invisible in general to angelic beings in particular. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that's sort of an unusual uh, set of titles for angelic beings. But Paul does use this to, to refer to them also in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3 and chapter 6, and also in the second chapter of Colossians here. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. The Bible doesn't specify the, the levels of what the ranks are or any more, anything else that's specific about them, so it, it's not really profitable for us to try to speculate about things that the Bible doesn't reveal to us. Um, but what we know here is that Jesus Christ created all of them. He created all of them. And that mattered to the Christians that the Apostle Paul was writing to because they were trying to deal with this Colossian heresy that was assaulting the church. And it involved, we don't know, again, we don't know all the specifics of this heresy, but it involved the worship of angels. 
And so it mattered to them that Paul had, was making the statement that Jesus Christ is God the Creator, therefore He is the Creator of angels, therefore He is to be worshipped, not angels. He created angelic beings and is therefore greater than angelic beings. Turn to the letter to the Hebrews. Turn to the letter to the Hebrews. The first chapter. I'm just going to begin reading at verse 3. And you can, come, uh, you can catch up with me as I, as I get there. Verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I don't know how Jehovah's Witnesses read this text and then come away with the conclusion that Jesus is an angel. I have no idea. That is not a biblical Jesus. And however glorious and powerful and mighty angels are, they're creatures. So Paul's whole argument here is that if Jesus created everything, he created angels, and therefore they are not to be worshipped, he is. That's his whole point here. And so he moves on and says, all things were created through him and for him. And he really just sums up everything he said so far, that all things were created through him. But then he adds this, for him. All things were created for Christ, for his glory. When I was growing up at Hillsdale Mall, before there was a Forever 21 and an H&M, there was a Mervyn's. Some of you remember Mervyn's. And... Um, they had this brand there called FUBU. And FUBU is an acronym. Uh, it's, it stands for For Us, By Us. That is what Paul is saying about the universe here. Um, they were made for Christ, by Christ. He is the origin point and the terminal point of all things. He's the terminal point of history, of the physical universe, and he's the terminal point of every soul. Revelation 22:13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
You could put it this way. Everything and everyone is moving in a Christ-word direction. And whether you're on your way to heaven or on your way to hell, you won't enter eternity without having to deal with him. Philippians 2, verse 4 through 11. Oh, where do you go? Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's the, here's the point where he's uh, really the goal of all things. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even in eternal misery and destruction, every knee will bow to Christ. Paul in Romans eleven thirty six says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Jesus Christ is the source of creation. He's the source of creation and the goal of creation. The final destination of all things. And this is an important reminder to those of us who are inclined to think or to live as though life is all about us. It is not. Life in general is not about us, and even our own lives are not about us. They are about Christ. And this gives believers great motivation, great motivation and freedom to live sacrificially and to spend and to exhaust ourselves in the service of Christ and to be a blessing to other people because we can do all of that not having to worry about what we're missing out on because our lives ultimately are not about ourselves. They're about Him. And so the Apostle, making this point that He is the source and the goal of all things, he says here, He is before all things. So He pre-exists everything. He pre-exists all creation. I won't labor that point too long. Again, we, we, uh, we've, we're getting this in spades. We're, we already are being shown very well. Uh, my goal here is not, again, to prove the deity of Christ, but more to, to provoke you and to cement you in that, uh, in that conviction, to put your feet in wet cement and just let it dry. Um, and Paul here really agrees with Jesus' prayer in John 17, which, by the way, is... is truly the Lord's Prayer, the, from the Sermon on the Mount, that's really the disciples' prayer that he gives them as an example for them. Uh, this is really the Lord's Prayer. In John 17, uh, starting in verse 1, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And here it is, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You know what existed before the world? Nothing except the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship with one another. So he is the creator of the universe, pre-existing it, and it even says here, he's the sustainer of the universe, 
the sustainer of the universe. It says, in him, all things hold together. Steve stole my illustration about atoms on this past Sunday, so I'll bill you for that later. Um, you know what atoms are? 99.999% empty space. You know what's made out of atoms? Everything. That means everything's made up of 99.99% of empty space. I'm going to remember that when, uh, when our daughter grows up and she wants something we can't afford. I'm just going to tell her, it's all empty space anyways. <laughs> So he perfectly sustains and maintains the universe. Do you know that the earth is just far, eno- just far away enough from the sun that we don't freeze, but, clo- but just close enough that we don't burn? You know the pressure that our bodies and the atmosphere exert on one another is identical? I mean, just like we, we the same thing with the atoms. What, what is binding the electrons to the, to the nucleus? What's keeping the, the earth and the sun at just the right distance are our bodies from floating off into space or being crushed by the atmosphere? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is holding all these things together. The crucified, risen, and ascended Son of God is perfectly maintaining the universe in exactly the way that it needs to be. Beginning of Hebrews, we are already in. By the way, the uh, Hebrews chapter 1, that first paragraph, is really a sis, kind of a sister uh, text to this paragraph in Colossians 1, almost like, uh, like, like twins that were separated at birth. Um, it says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If Jesus Christ can hold the universe together at a uh, subatomic, atmospheric, and cosmic level, you can trust him with your life. You can trust him to be in control of your life. And when you're facing... Uh, back-to-back-to-back financial problems, or if you or a loved one have chronic illness or pain with no end in sight, or if if you have warfare in your home and you're dealing with heartbreak or loneliness, you can trust Christ to hold your life together. The one who holds the whole cosmos together. You can trust him. A Jesus who is merely an angel does not deserve that trust. A Jesus who is merely a man, however perfect and holy he is, does not deserve that trust. A Jesus who is anything less than the Almighty God does not deserve that trust for your life. And so, even just in these few verses alone, Paul gives us this, really this cosmic vision of Jesus as creator, as the creator God. And the one who is supreme over the whole universe is also supreme over the church. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. You know who's not the head of the church? The Bishop of Rome. You know who I'm talking about? The Pope. Neither he nor his predecessors nor his successors are the head of the church. Steve has been pastor of this church for 25 years this year. 
He's not the head of the church. Ken's been pastor elder here uh, longer than that, right? Almost, what, 30 years? 20? 32. 32 years. He's not head of the church. John MacArthur isn't head of the church. There is only one head of the church, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. I like this quote by um, H.B. Charles. He says, anything without a head is dead, and anything with more than one head is a monster. (laughs) And you know how he rules his church? This book. This is the rationale behind expositional preaching. This is the rationale where we explain and apply the text. And it is also the rationale for sequential expositional preaching, where we move verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. Jesus, in uh, speaking with his enemies about him, his own identity and his own claim to be the good shepherd, he says in John 10, uh, verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door Um, by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. Remember, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. The the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. We know the voice of Christ. If you are in him, if you believe, if you have been born again, you know the voice of Christ and you follow him. Not perfectly, but still you follow him. A stranger, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Christians recognize the voice and the authority of Jesus Christ in his word. When his word is read or when his word is preached, They recognize his voice. This is what's so tragic about churches watching Hollywood movies on Sunday mornings. All these at the movies series. I mean, you guys guys are all here in this church, so you may not be familiar with that, but um, we're on social media. We see it. And it's tragic because they have ceased to believe. They have ceased to believe that this book is the voice of Christ and that it's authoritative over the church. They have ceased to believe that it has the power to transform lives. How many of you, at one point in your life, wouldn't be caught dead walking through a church, walking into a church? This book transforms lives, and it is the voice of Christ, and it is the authority of Christ that does that in our hearts. And they haven't cut the head off the body by doing that. They've cut the body off from the head. The head lives on, and the, the, really the body of Christ is this global entity, uh, really global and, and trans. Um, it goes beyond the ages. It goes beyond the ages. It's not, it's not uh, there are local expressions of it. That's what we are. We're a local church. We are, we are a local assembly of believers gathering for worship. Um, but Christ said that he will build this church, and that is true universally. Wherever in the world it is, he will build his church. He says that I will build my church, my church, not not someone else's church, Um, my church. It belongs to Christ. Uh, The head of the church is not the one standing behind the preaching desk on Sunday morning or the one that's seated ex cathedra at the Vatican. He's seated at the right hand of power. That is the head of the church. 
And that fact should determine and flavor everything that we do as a church. Everything. And so, this Jesus, who's the head of the church, what qualifies him to be such? Paul goes on, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul reminds us that the ultimate supremacy of Jesus Christ finds its fulfillment not in creation, but in the new creation. In the new creation. And that we are the first fruits of that. It is the resurrection of Christ that's the basis for his preeminence of all things. And when he says that he is the beginning, is he, is he repeating himself here? He's already, he's already spoken about Christ as creator. He's already spoken about Christ as pre-existent. Is that what he's referring to here? I don't think so. Um, because he's already made that point. I don't think that he's, he's pulling out a nail just to hammer it back in. Um, he's already progressed from the, the, the creation, the created order, to the church. And when Paul calls Christ the firstborn from the dead, what does he mean? Again, we're back at this word, prototokos. Does he mean first in sequence or first in rank? Now, Christ was not the first person raised from the dead, right? He himself raised people from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And even in the Old Testament, the prophets Elijah and his successor Elisha raised people from the dead in First and Second Kings. So it can't mean he was the first one resurrected. That's not what it's talking about here either. But I will say this about Christ's resurrection. He was not the first raised from the dead, but he was the first raised never to die again. He was the first raised to never die again. All others prior to him were raised and then died a second time. If you're a believer, you are born again. These people died again. But Christ was raised to glory and lives forevermore. And it is his resurrection on which we anchor our hope of future hope and glory. The resurrection of Christ was the start of a new humanity, a humanity that would be raised to newness of life, bodily raised on the last day. And you know what that humanity is called? The church. This is what Paul is saying in the second part here of verse 18, when he says, He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The significance, the impact, and the implications of his resurrection far surpass any resurrection before or after him. That his, his resurrection is essentially the, the summit of all of his uh, work here on earth. And it was, uh, the, even the Father bestows a certain glory and a certain honor on him after having raised him from the dead, raised him to power. It was only a few years ago that we were in 1 Corinthians here as a church. And in verse 15, Paul makes this whole point. He goes to great lengths to demonstrate that without the resurrection of Jesus, we're still in our sins, there's no future hope for believers, and our faith is in vain. This is the, the, the significant impact on history and on believers that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has. It's arguably the most important I say arguably, you can, a lot of contenders, but it is arguably the most important event in Scripture. This is why he qualifies as the head of the church. This is why he is the beginning of a new humanity that will be bodily raised to everlasting life and that he is preeminent above all things. He is preeminent apart from us. He is preeminent 
independent from us. He's supreme. He reigns over all things. We don't make him preeminent any more than we make him Lord of our lives. But do we live as though he is preeminent? Do the unbelievers that we work with, the unbelievers in our home, do they look at our lives and think, that person believes that Christ is preeminent above all things? Is he preeminent in the moments of your life where no one is looking? In those unseen places of your imagination, is he preeminent? When you follow the trail of your time spent and your money spent, do you find Christ to be preeminent? I mentioned a man from the third century who insisted that Jesus was the first created being and that he was not God. The church recognized two things at the time. They recognized the clarity with which the Bible as a whole speaks to the deity of Christ, that that is clear. And they realized the eternal consequences of denying that fact the eternal consequences of denying the deity of Christ. If you don't have a Christ who's God, you don't have a gospel. You don't have good news. Because a Savior who's not God cannot save. If Jesus were merely a man, even a perfect man, he couldn't atone for the sins of the world in the way that the Bible describes it. He could at best atone for the sins of one person. We're thinking in hypotheticals here. Hypothetically, if he were just a perfect person, he could only really atone for the sins of one person. One soul, one person. If he's not God, then the value and the power of his death would be limited, not unlimited. The power and the effect of his death would be limited, not unlimited, if he were only a man. And so, recognizing these two things, the church marked, that, marked out that man as a heretic and his, anger, and his error as dangerous. And the error echoes down through church history to this day as the Arian heresy. That's not to be confused with Arian, the, the uh, idea of, uh, of creating a super race that we saw um, in the past century with Adolf Hitler. Uh, not to be confused with that. This is Arian with an I. And our spiritual ancestors understood that tolerating lies about Jesus Christ endangered the souls of real people. The eternal souls of real people. This is why this is important. This is not just um, matters about disagreements of points of doctrine that don't matter. This is about souls that are going to go to heaven or go to hell. And it matters what we believe about Christ. And it matters that we believe what Christ says about himself. And what those who he gave his own authority to send out into the world, what they said about him. Because they speak with the authority of Christ as well. And the, this ancient controversy, it matters to us because Arius' spiritual successors are right in our backyard. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Unitarians, they don't, believe in a de- they don't believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in a Christ who is merely. They don't believe in a Christ who is divine. They don't believe in a Christ who can save They all deny the divine nature of Christ and they're all in our backyard. And when we encounter them, we have to remember that the church has long since put their error in the grave. They just want to keep resurrecting it. And so um, we don't need to, and a lot of them can tie us into a, uh, into a, 
semantic pretzel, really, and the, they're, they're trained to be able to debate and they're trained to be able to, to twist and to pervert the scriptures. And so it's important for us to really uh, be, have steel to our bones and steel in our spines when we encounter this. And, you know, and tell, you know, you don't mess with the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't mess with what he says about himself. You don't, you don't take glory away from my Savior by denying who he truly is. And so we need to take that stand and we need to really... Um, have a something of a we we need to we need to like the Paul the Apostle Paul says we need to address our our opponents with uh, with gentleness and respect but we need to address them firmly and we need to say you don't mess with the Lord Jesus Christ and you don't mess with who he says he is because if he's not who he says he is then we have no hope for salvation we have no hope for salvation we have no hope for a resurrection it's all in vain if he is not who he says he is so his glory is at stake and the souls of men are at stake as well. Amen? This is the church's response to Arius after that controversy. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, they say, we believe, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made. That's an important distinction. Begotten, not made. He's not a creature being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. So, we need to take seriously and we need to have that burden in our hearts for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great gift of your Son and that you are clear with us who he is. Uh, Lord, would you uh, really provoke us to that conviction, uh, to hold to that and to not waver and to not be silent about that to proclaim the glory of our Lord for everything that He is. And Lord, by doing so, would You transform us into His likeness as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to You from Your Word. Would You uh, enlighten us and empower us with Your Holy Spirit that we can live those lives for Your glory. Amen.